Spoken Word, half an hour of poetry and performance. Your connection to Melbourne's grassroots poetry scene. The voice of those of us who have nothing but our voices. Good morning and welcome to the 3CR Spoken Word Program. My name is Di Cousins and today I'm talking to Susan Hawthorne um, in a second program uh, about her life in poetry. Welcome, Susan. Hello, Di. It's great to be back with you. Yes, I'm very excited to be able to continue the conversation. And um, and I thought we could just reflect more on your own work over over your lifetime. So you started writing poetry about 50 years ago? Uh, my first publication uh, was in 1972 at a, uh, in the Melbourne Teachers College newspaper, Griffin. And then I took a very long break. Right. <laughs> well, oh, I did have another poem in the mid-70s, but that, there was not much really coming out until uh, the early 90s. Right, but you were probably writing anyway, but it, you just weren't putting it out in the public domain, perhaps? Pretty much, pretty much. Poetry takes a long time to get going with, I think. I mean, there are a few people who managed to do it very young, but that wasn't me. Yeah. And now in 1991, you started Spinifex Publishing. Spinifex Press was started by Renata Klein and I in 1991. We planned for a year. We didn't know whether we would go beyond that, and now we've been around for 31 years. Congratulations. That's absolutely extraordinary. And what was the mission of Spinifex Press? Our mission is to publish innovative and controversial work by feminists with a an optimistic edge and we felt it was important to have the optimistic edge as part of it because people go oh those feminists it's all bad news from them yeah no i mean it's all about making positive change so the world can be a better place hey indeed it is that's what we try to do whether we do it through non-fiction or fiction or poetry it all adds up and I've recently interviewed Sandy Jeffs and Angela Costi about their new books um, on this program. Tell us about some of the other new books that you've published at Spinifex. Well, the last year we also published a book by Usha Akela, who is an Indian woman who lives in the USA. Her manuscript arrived out of the blue and just knocked my socks off. And so we published that around about this time last year. Amazing. And late last year we published uh, a, a second book by uh, that uh, from Spinifex by um, Liz Murphy called The Wear of My Face. Oh, yes. We had wonderful. her on the program as well. Oh, good. And uh, coming up next month we have a new book by Rose Hunter called Body Shell Girl, which is a narrative poem about the first two years that she spent in the sex trade in Canada. And it is an extraordinary work and really, really powerful. Yeah, well, I look forward to reading that. Um, it, that sounds very insightful. She's based up in, um, in uh, Queensland, southern Queensland. Oh, okay. 
Great. Well, let's go to some of your work. So you've been publishing for 50 years, but what was your first book or chapbook? My first book was an earlier version of Bird. It was called The Language in My Tongue and was in a book called Four New Poets, uh-huh. uh, which was published by Penguin when Judith Rodriguez was the poetry series editor there. It's a book about uh, the experience of epilepsy, uh, and it was one of those urgent books. I had to write it, and a lot of the poems came very, very quickly, including The Language in My Tongue, which is really a key poem in the book. Great. So, well, would you like to read that one? Yes, I think I will. So it begins. My tongue has blossomed in my mouth. It is filled with language. It spreads like a big red balloon with language caught inside. A language that can't distinguish one thing from another. A language that does not care for past or future. A language tense with the present. The language in my tongue dissolves all history. It dissolves all expectation of the future. The language in my is a big red balloon. There's a language in my body too, a language in the arch of my back, a language in the froth from my mouth, a language in my clenched fist, a language in the cry from my lungs. There's a language in my bleeding tongue. The language in my body and in my tongue is the language they spoke in Delphi, the language of the seizure that dispels time, that defies death that returns the orator to the world of light, that single point that draws me back from the inertia, the gravity field of a hole so black, nothing exists and nothing matters. Wow, yes. So um, on one level, is it about epilepsy, is it? It is, yes. Um, I grew up with epilepsy and it's it's obviously uh, affected my view world and when I first read uh, about Delphi and uh, the way that that system worked it seemed to me because there is a reference to the the priestesses going into seizures now I don't know if that's actually but it makes a nice poetic trope. (laughs) Yeah well it does no but I remember (laughs) when I was doing my PhD field work on the Tibetan border that was quite customary for our rites of spirit possession to take place as a part of festivals so as to communicate with the deities. Yes, yes. I mean, and, it's and, contemporary still. Yes, it is, yeah. But uh, the language, you know, as like a non-verbal language, I think we often fail to understand how many languages there are. And I like the line, the lang- language of my tongue is tense with the present. Yeah, and... and- I really like the bit that it's a big balloon <laughs> because it kind of, you know, it's kind of there and it's such a strong image. Yes, and where you go in the moment of seizure is an interesting question. It is, and there's a lot of confusion when you come out, out of a seizure and, you know, time has kind of vanished and it's difficult to figure out what's happened Sometimes you don't know your own name and, you know, yeah, all sorts of things. So go, both going in and going out is is odd. <laughs> yeah, well, it's just all these different levels of, of, of kinds of consciousness that we, we don't normally imagine. Because 
people look as if they're about to die and because many people, when they do die, have seizures. Oh, okay. There's connection with dying and then coming back to life. Wow. Oh, well, that's a wonderful poem. Thank you for sharing that. Uh, where shall we go next? The butterfly effect is probably the next one. It's, it's a really quite a strange book and I'm just going to read the very first poem, the opening poem in it. It's mostly a book about lesbian culture and it has some very long prose poems at the beginning, then a series of shorter poems and it finishes up with something called India Sutra, uh, which documents a trip that I made to India in 2004. And uh, a sutra, you know, is a thread. So it's also a literary thread. And that's where that title comes from. So the butterfly effect, of course, is a, a, a concept from science. And it's from physics. And it's one in which a small action can have enormous consequences. So the flap of a butterfly's wing in one part of the world can cause devastating storms on the other side. And what I play with is the idea that the word lesbian can frighten people so much that it can bring down families and destroy governments and have uh, quite a big effect. So the first poem I'm going to read is called Strange Tractors which is a reference to strange attractors, which is a weather-based concept, but it's also a reference to um, an ancient Greek method of ploughing called bustrophedon, which is where a cow walks backwards and forwards across the field and writing follows, goes across the page and then comes back uh, in reverse. And so when you try to read bustrophedon, you have to figure out where the brakes are and how to read backwards. Mm-hmm. It's a lot of fun. Uh, strange, it's an ancient method of ploughing, more ancient even than Bustrophedon. Two cattle retracing their steps in parallel lines. No, here there's not a straight line to be seen anywhere. Chaos in the shape of two vulval wings. The butterfly effect. Very quick one, yeah. It is. It is a very quick one, but it 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 made it into the best poems of the year. So incredible, yeah. <laughs> yes, to someone. Yes, well, there's always so many layers, you know, outer and inner layers, and other layers to you know these images. Mm. And the the long sequence, which is called the butterfly effect, is a series of prose poems, and uh, on. The right-hand side is the poem, and on the left-hand side there are footnotes so that you can read the footnotes in parallel. And it's basically about lesbian culture. Uh, And because I know that a lot of people don't know much about the richness of lesbian culture, that's why I did it that way. Yep. Would you like to share that one? (laughs) I'll tell you what, I can share just the the beginning of the first poem which is called Unstopped Mouths. I read two of the paragraphs. Okay. We meet in the gymnasium not to huff and puff and sweat into wet towels. This is a gymnasium for women. It takes into account all the needs of the body, the mind, the wild spirit. Ian Lesbian read Sappho in her original tongue. We converse and share our memories 
families of ancestors without issue. We compare family trees where a single woman sits alone on a branch. She is on the topmost bough with the reddest apple in her hand. She is about to take the first bite, the final bite. Perhaps she will be cast off this bough, not allowed to inhabit the ordinary society of people. And that was actually turned into a circus performance. I was a member of the performing older women's circus time, and so we turned that into a performance. It was a lot of fun. Fabulous. Yeah. Well, it, it is an interesting thing, these family trees. And, yes, those uh, the, the, those who don't have little lines coming under them, they're often not uh, given the attention they deserve. And Judy Grant wrote a book about, about that and the, the way in which the lesbians are pushed off the edge of the tree. <laughs> right, 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 right. Okay, so tell me about uh, the next book that you wrote. When when did it come out? Earth's Breath came out in 2009, just oh. before I went off to India. And it happened because up here in 2006 we had a Category 5 cyclone, Cyclone Larry, mm-hmm. where the um, winds got up to around 300 metres an hour. It was an amazing experience, but coming out, into the garden afterwards yeah everything was so quiet and the trees were flattened and the garden was flattened um we'd only been living up here you know not quite full time but living here for about a year Uh, so it was terrible to see everything knocked out on the other hand it was also really interesting because there were so many odd things that happened so for example there was a big snake a python that was sitting down at the bottom of our drive and it was huge. Mm. It was huge because it had eaten a wallaby. Wow. <laughs> and it sat there for a very long time. Wow. A big slow digestion. So I wrote a poem about that called Ouroboros and the actual species name is Liasis olivaceus. So I'll just read it is another really short one. Okay. The olive python beside the drive is in a digestive state, having swallowed the world, swallowed the wallaby, body coiled between branches, almost invisible. And we had wonderful birds come by as well. And, you know, it was such an amazing experience. The frigate birds are are really, really beautiful. They are you, they only come when there's a storm and they do these extraordinary dives straight down into the sea and they are really, really beautiful. And a whole lot of other birds came by that we hadn't seen previously. Yeah. Well, a changed world after the cataclysm, you know, it's sort of everything was new in a sense. Uh, towards the end of the book, I have I have a poem that draws on my Sanskrit interest at which had been going for a couple of years at that point. And I called it Yuganta Megaha. And a Yuganta Megaha is a gathering of clouds at the end of a yuga. And a yuga is a long period of time, the different ages. And so I played with that. So it begins at the end of every cosmic cycle, end of a generation, 
Yuganta Megaha. Clouds congregate, gathering souls for the next yoga. Cloud breath, soul mist, rasping winds, rattling bones. Here come the galloping horses. Humans astride their flanks. Here come the thundering clouds, breaking the world apart. The Hercules moth climbs every building, rising up through a hundred floors, scaling the earth to find the moon, that light in the sky through which he might escape Earth's pool and melt into the inferno of light. The, the Hercules moth is so big that the first time I saw one, I thought it was a bat. They're really, really big. And my dog wasn't interested in it. So that kind of made me step back and go, oh, maybe it's not a bat. <laughs> yes, but it, it's a, and it's an interesting idea, you know, all the things that gather together to mark the end of time at the end of the yuga, you know, when time ends and then begins again at the next yuga. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, I mean, it's a sort of imaginary world that is quite outside of ordinary life. It is. And, and, you know, watching, sitting in the bedroom and watching the cyclone go past, it was, I wasn't actually scared um, because there was nothing that you could do. Um, and in a way, it was of like because there weren't any people involved in in doing this it it sort of seemed like a, a sense of cosmic acceptance which i know sounds weird but it was too big to bend yes well i um i can i can imagine that you know like i have a friend who survived cyclone tracy you know just sort of hanging on to the the bath in the in the bathroom i mean these things are bigger than us they are, they are. All, all of these things, floods, the fires, yes. cyclones, earthquakes, tsunami, they're all bigger than us. Yeah. And they, they're getting more frequent. Yes, yes, exactly. I'm talking to Susan Hawthorne about her life in poetry. And um, the next book we're going to talk about is Cow, which I noticed was shortlisted for the Kenneth Lesser Poetry Prize in the New South Wales Premier's Literary Awards and was a finalist in the Audrey Lord Lesbian Poetry Prize, which is American. Um, tell me about Cow. How did it come about? Well, um, I applied for um, a grant, an AsiaLink grant, to go to Chennai. Um, and I especially wanted to go to India because I, I was interested in Indian um, culture and uh, the cow was a good way in, you know, metaphorically speaking. I then also discovered the, the tradition of Sangam poetry um, that is part of the Tamil uh, culture and Chennai, Tamil Nadu and so I, I basically spent four months while I was there just thinking about cows um, and, you know, there are so many ways you can think about cows. Um, I also discovered that, uh, or worked out that the, the you know, I could start, say that it was the cow who created the universe because, you know, we have galaxies. And what are galaxies? Well, 
it's milk. <laughs> so, um, you know, that's the great thing about poetry. You can make things up. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Well, that's that's creativity. Yeah. And, um, you know, I, I had some fabulous experiences with cows, some, you know, the great big water buffaloes that are just huge and I saw about a dozen of them walking along a street um, just near where I was living and I had grown up on a farm and been bunted by a cat when I was a child and I had to learn to overcome that but I tell you what I backed, <laughs> I backed off from these giant cows when I saw them in the street. Yeah they're huge and their skin is this black hard leathery skin and their horns yeah. are vast and Yes. Yeah, and then, then there are the more sedate ones, you know, the ones that are just wandering around the streets mm. and eating whatever there is to eat and so forth. So I, I wasn't scared of them, but I was scared of big, big buffalo. Yeah. yeah, fair enough too. So what would you like to share from the book, Cow? Well, things that I discovered about Sangam poetry is that they have titles like... Um, use here what she says about her girlfriend's mother so it's always what she says or what he says about somebody so I use that as my system of titles throughout the book uh, and sometimes they're, they're poems about cows this one is only marginally about cows a little bit so what she says about her girl, girlfriend's mother one day she looks down the throat of her child who has been playing in the mud eating dirt. There inside the mouth is the universe. Trees, seas, mountains and everything in between. There are cows feeding, feeding calves, the milk spilling around the calves' mouths. A giant snake curls around a tree trunk. The snake and the cow are morphing. The dividing line between them blurred at the sea's edge on any beach. The mothers are trying hard to contain their ch- but what can you do when the world is held in an open mouth? Yes, another one of those cosmic visions that you get in Indian mythology. You're seeing the whole world in, in contained within an unexpected thing. Yes, um, I mean, there, there are some... Ama- I, I actually watched two cows two dogs on the street near where I lived and there was a brown cow who had a brown dog sitting by it all night and a bit further along the street there was a black cow with a black dog I thought is that just accident or or is there some intention here (laughs) there's two different tribes (laughs) yep yep Um, and I have another poem which is called what she says about nomadic life. And because I grew up on a farm and I have pursued cows, it kind of draws on some of that in some ways. There are two ways of walking in the world. You can walk along a path in which your colourful garments are a rainbow or you can walk with your limbs strung with ropes and string so you resemble the downward-pointing roots of banyan trees in motion, an ocean of sound such as arises when a great herd of cattle sways along a dusty road. 
Yes, I've been a big fan of Ramanujan's translations of things like The Interior Landscape and um, Poems of Love and War. And yes, there's always these these wonderful nature images in there, you know, the sound of the of the cows as they walk past. You know, that's another that's a beautiful, very natural image. I mean, it was such a, a boon to discover the Ramanujan uh, translated translation was fan, you know, just it kind of opened up the possibilities of doing it. And and in relation to the to the bunting and so forth, I, I have one uh, just an extract from a poem in which I I followed a a, um, a cow up from the paddock and I have touched her and she's got a, ca- a calf. And she turns around and gets me in my back. Yes. Fortunately, tied on, so I didn't get gored. But then the second half of the poem goes, I have doubled in age and am learning the internal properties of cow. Stand your ground, calls my father, as the biggest cow of the herd breaks away and runs straight at me. I wave my arms about, wave the stick at the end of my arm. She is still running. I jump and scream and wave two metres before I am history. She veers sideways and returns to the herd. I have found my cow inside. I have learnt the internal property that she will give way if you stand your ground. Stand your ground, I say to myself. Even the internal cow is impressed. Excellent. <laughs> yes. And and it's such a thing for us all to learn to stand our ground, whoever we are. And hard. And especially if you've got this fear that is so visceral, um, it's it's hard to deal with. But I've, you know, sort of overcame it. Yes, yes. No, well, I, re- I remember being charged by a cow in Tamil Nadu once and I jumped into the Kaveri River. That was my solution. <laughs> Which was much safer. No, again, I touched the calf and, you know, there we go. I learned not to do that. Um, Well, thank you for coming on the program. Can I read you one short poem from Luca and Lamb? Yes, sure. It's one that I, which is a book I wrote when I was in Rome. I got a six-month residency there. Mm -hmm. And to my surprise, I got really, really interested in the churches and what was going on. Uh, there and with the the young martyrs, the young women who were killed as martyrs. So I went into a church, Santa Cecilia, um, and there was this amazing, beautiful white body in a in a, 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 a see through cask. And I wrote this poem for Santa Cecilia. She was one of the one of the young women who were killed under the apse. A pure white marble body, hands bound, head wrapped, face downward crying. She sings through her dead mouth. The earth hears her long dying song. Above, golden angels spiral and my heart weeps. Beautiful, beautiful, yeah. We can see it very clearly. You know, it's called Luper and Lamb because Luper is the wolf. It's also an, uh, tra- can be translated as substitute. And Lamb uh, refers to the Lamb of God, but also uh, a side reference to the word Lambda, uh, which is uh, a word used for lesbians. So I'm trying to 
play with all of those elements. Yes, the different kinds of meanings in things, which are, yeah, yeah which have different levels to them. Yep. Great. Okay. Well, thank you for coming on the program. Thank you so very much, Di. Um, it's, it's lovely to talk to somebody who cares about poetry. Oh, well, it's it's wonderful to, to talk to you about your work, which I really admire and uh, am happy to celebrate. Thank you very much. Great. Okay. So I've been talking to Susan Hawthorne who's the author of a num- of 10 poetry books. The most recent is The Sacking of the Muses, published by Spinifex Press. And my name is Di Cousins, and this has been the Spoken Word Programme.